Let's start with a moment of prayer. Um, Father, we worship you. We love you. We're gathered here because we want to learn about you and learn your ways and follow you. I pray today you, Holy Spirit, would come and meet with us in a personal way um, and highlight things from your word to us that are relevant and real and impactful. And I pray, Lord, that you would drop some of these things that some of us maybe know and have heard before from our heads deep down into our hearts. So we welcome you and ask you for that today. Amen. If you are new here, welcome. My name is Grant. I'm one of the pastors here at Restored. And in the summer, we've been going through a series called Prayer in the Psalms. We've been working our way through the book of Psalms and learning a little bit more about the book, about some of the chapters and about how to pray. And today we're going to be in Psalm 51, which again is one of the most famous Psalms uh, in the whole Psalter and also one of the more famous chapters in the scriptures as a whole. So what I wanted to do is just start a little bit differently today. We're going to read the whole of Psalm 51 right off the bat, right from the start, just to get a bit of an overview and then get into the message. So if you've got a Bible, you can open Psalm 51. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen here. In my translation at the top, it says Psalm 51 a prayer for restoration. So just off the bat, you know there is something that needs to be restored. There is something that is wrong, something that is broken, something that needs God's intervention. A prayer for restoration. And David, who writes the psalm, writes and says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you, you were right when you passed sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is a really well-known psalm, as I've already said. If you've grown up in the church, I would guess you've heard this taught on a couple of times before. I grew up going to a school where we sung this psalm. Maybe you have too. Maybe you can like kind of picture this in your mind. Again, I'm not going to sing it, but create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Like that was a song I sung a bunch growing up. But this is an amazing psalm, not just because of what is written in Psalm 51, but also because of the backstory to the psalm. 
in this psalm, we don't just have the words of David, but we also have the background to what David did and why, the things that led to the writing of this psalm and prayer. Now, I know in this room, this community has made up a lot of elder millennials, um, and some of you guys would know pretty well VH1 Behind the Music. Anyone watched that before? Some love, some nods. Ethan in the back with the love. Um, VH1 Behind the Music is like a, a really fun show, kind of getting behind the artists and the songs and the tours and all of those things. And I was doing some research on this uh, before the sermon today. And one of the, the kind of origin stories of this that I heard is that the CEO of VH1 was chatting with a person who made Behind the Music. And he just said, whatever happened to Millie Vanilli? Like, what happened to those guys? And that began a two-year journey leading to the first Behind the Music documentary or the start of this docu-series. And it's so interesting when we know not just the songs, but the musicians and the bands and the stories of what happened on tour, why those songs were written and all of those things. And we, we kind of have a different experience of that now because with social media and with like media entertainment or news entertainment, a lot of these things are just happening live. Like you're not finding out about this five or 10 years down the line. Like as these things are breaking, you're seeing them on social media, you're watching them on the news, which is just the wildest thing that this is included in the news. And you're finding out what is going on with your favorite artist or band. And I know that's true because I'm not a Miley Cyrus fan. And you might be, that's okay. But since January, I've heard the song Flowers, I think a hundred times. I feel like I know it really, really well. And this week, I just thought about that because somehow I know, even though I'm not a Miley Cyrus fan, I know that that song is about like her relationship with Liam Hemsworth. And I know that there are a bunch of little Easter eggs written into that song about why their relationship didn't work. And I'm not a fan. So I read an article this week, 10 Easter eggs in flowers about Liam and Miley's relationship, which was really illuminating and interesting. And for that, and a lot of these kinds of songs, when you know the story behind the song, when you know the story behind the artist or the band, it changes how you hear a song. It changes how you engage with it or how you receive it or how you experience it or how you understand and relate to that song. And it's the same with the Psalms. We've been going through the series for two months now. And as you read one of these Psalms, we can easily relate without knowing the backstory. You, you know, you read it and you go, I can tell that the Psalmist is alone or scared, I can tell that the psalmist is fearful, I can tell that the psalmist doesn't know what God is doing, or that they are full of praise by what you're reading. But a lot of the time, you don't know why. We don't know why they're writing the psalm, we don't know the reason, the occasion for them writing it. But we can still relate to what is written because yeah, their emotions, their experiences are ours. But when it comes to psalms like Psalm 51, we know exactly what is going on. We know the full context, the sin, the story, why David comes with a pen and paper and writes down the psalm. We know the why. And I want to get into that a little bit today. In my Bible, we get a bit of a, an answer to it right at the top of Psalm 51. It says, a prayer for restoration. And the little subtext is, for the choir director, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. For those of you who know the story, you're like, well, that sounds like the G-rated kind of sanitized summary of what is going on there. There's a little bit more behind the story. And that's what we find in 2 Samuel 11, kind of the R-rated real story of brokenness that leads to this prayer and of this prayer of confession and repentance that David is praying in Psalm 51. Just as easily under that Psalm 51 heading, you could read these words, what to pray when you've committed adultery and murder and are at your lowest. Because that's what's going on at Psalm 51. 
what to pray when you're at your lowest, when you're shocked by what you've done, when you're shocked by who you've become. So what are we looking at in Psalm 51 today? If you like to Psalm, if you want to find out a bit more, Paul Tripp's got an excellent devotional book called Whiter Than Snow, where he just works his way through this. It's a really encouraging book. And in it, he says this about Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is about how God meets us in our moments of deepest failure and transforms us by his grace. So much hope. He also says this psalm of moral failure, personal awareness, grief, confession, repentance, commitment, and hope wraps its arms around the experience of each one of us. Psalm 51 is a prayer for each of us, a psalm for each of us when we're at our lowest, when we're at our worst, when we feel furthest from God and we need help. Now, I've been a pastor for a little bit over 15 years. And in my experience, something that I've seen with different people is normally when people sin or mess up in a big way, they're not very quick to come to God. Normally with people, when they do feel like they've really messed up, it takes a while to come back to God in prayer and be with God or speak to God or bring these things to God. Normally what people do instead is they create some space. And they try and just let the dust settle. They try and get to a place where they feel better. They feel more righteous. They, they feel like they're in a better place with God. Or, or maybe try and just even things out, you know. I've done all of this bad stuff. So if I can just do some good stuff, I can kind of balance the, like this out. And then God and I will be fine. And I can come and pray again. And in some situations, people just never feel that again. They feel they've messed up, they feel they've sinned, and they just never return to God or church or community. They just withdraw from Him because of what they've done. But in Psalm 51, we find someone who's failed in a big way. We find someone who's really messed up, who's done the worst thing that you can imagine, the, the worst thing that they could imagine. They've become someone they never thought that they would become, and they come to God. And when they do, what they find is they experience warm, open arms receiving them, not angry, crossed, folded arms, which reject them. God's arms are open to David when he comes to him. Psalm 51 is a prayer of good news for all of us. It's, it's an invitation to come home to God. It's an invitation to find grace and forgiveness and love at a time when maybe we feel like we don't deserve it. So before we get into Psalm 51, let's get into the backstory. VH1 behind the Psalms. Let's see what it's got to say and help us to understand what David is going to tell us. So if you turn to 2 Samuel 11 in your Bibles, right at the top, we read like a slightly more R-rated heading. It says, David's adultery with Bathsheba. Sometimes the Bible just drops it like it is. This is what we're reading now in this chapter. And in verse 1, the author writes and says, in the spring when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So this is kind of a name and shame moment for David right from the bat. It's telling us in verse 1 that David isn't where he should have been. David isn't in the place he should be. He's not doing what he should be. It's a time when kings go to war, but David has sent Joab out with all of the soldiers. Joab and the soldiers are doing the fighting, and David is hanging out at home doing nothing. He's just enjoying the summer on his own. And one of the things we realize here, it's like that famous saying that goes, idle hands are the devil's plaything. That's what David is experiencing. He's not where he should be. He's not doing what he should be doing. And he's a little bit bored. Verse two, one evening David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace 
From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hethite? So what David does is he sees and then he inquires. David is kind of, like there's a lot of warning signs here, a lot of red lights flashing, and David is just blowing past them and doing things he shouldn't do. He sees this woman, he's attracted to her, he asks questions about what's going on, he finds the information, he finds that she's married, and then in verse 4, we read that he takes it further, David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness, afterwards she returned home, and the woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. So at best in this situation, there's been adultery. David has had an affair. At worst, because he's the king and she's one of the subjects, this is like a really unequal power dynamic that is going on. And this has been a really terrible moment of David like forcing himself on this woman. And David has done this, and then he's hoped that it's a one-night stand, no strings attached, move on from there. When the news comes that she's pregnant, there's a baby, there's evidence that something's going to continue. This is not over. So what does David do? Verse 6 says, David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hethite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. What David does is he says, get me the husband. If we can get the husband here, maybe what we can do, get him a little lick it up, send him home. And then what he can do is him and his wife can make love and we can kind of cover my tracks. No one needs to know that I've fathered this baby. No one needs to know what we've done. We can just cover this up and we can carry on with our lives. But Uriah is too honorable. Uriah refuses to go home and be with his wife and enjoy the comfort of being at home and being with her when all of the other soldiers are out at war fighting in this battle, which is a bit of like a slight on David. In verse 1, David doesn't go. Uriah comes back from battle and he still refuses to enjoy the comforts of home when everyone else is out at war, doing what David should be doing. So a little bit further down, just above verse 14, the header says, Uriah's death arranged. For seven verses, David tries to make a plan to cover his tracks. And when it doesn't work, in verse 14, the next morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. David doesn't get his way. Covering his tracks doesn't work. Uriah is going to realize that his wife had slept with someone while he was away at battle. This tummy's growing, this baby is coming. So he decides the easiest thing to do is just kill Uriah, and then I can marry her and father this child and move on with life. It'll be fine. David doesn't get his way. And we read in verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. So in a sense, David gets away with it. You know, he sleeps with this woman, gets her pregnant, it's fine. He kills the husband, moves her into the house. No one's going to know. Or if they know, it's fine. He's kind of cleaned up the mess. He swept it under the carpet. He can continue with life, except the Lord looks at this and isn't pleased. The Lord sees this and calls this evil. And what God does is he sends a prophet named Nathan to meet with David and confront him for what he has done. And Nathan preaches a phenomenal sermon. He comes to David and he says, I've got something to share with you. David says, tell me. And he talks about two men, one wealthy 
with just huge farms, lots of sheep, and another man with one little lamb that he loves and cares for. And the really wealthy man has guests come round, and he decides rather than killing one of his own lambs, one of his own sheep, he takes this one lamb that the poorer man has, and he slaughters it and gives it to his friends. And when David hears this, he's livid. David says, that is unjust. This man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you are that man. And it's like the lights go on for David. The whole way through the story, David's been covering his tracks. He knows he's done the wrong thing, but he's just trying to clean it up, clean it up, clean it up. And now everything is fine, except it's not fine. And when Nathan comes and shares the injustice of what he's done, David sees it, he gets it, and then he realizes this is me. What I have done is unjust and evil. What I have done is so wrong. And he's convicted. And Psalm 51 comes out of this moment of being exposed, his heart being revealed, the lights going on inside, the, the holy light of God shining inside of his own heart. This is the context for Psalm 51. Derek Kidner, an expert on the Psalms, writes, Psalm 51 comes from David's blackest moment of self-knowledge, yet it explores not only the depths of his guilt, but some of the richest or farthest reaches of salvation. So we're going to get into Psalm 51 in a second, but I want to just ask you one or two questions to think about as we read the Psalm. You don't have to share this with anyone else in the room. You can if you want. You don't have to shout anything out loud, but just where you're sitting, I want to ask you to think about the time in your life where you felt lowest or the time in your life where you felt like you had failed the most greatly or the time in your life when you felt furthest away from God. What was that? And then for you in that moment, how did you respond? Did you come to God in that time or not? What did you do when you were in that place and you were aware of those feelings? How did you respond? What did you do? Secondly, how would you pray if you were David? So imagine 2 Samuel 11 is your story. You've done these things. The lights have gone on. Nathan's confronted you. you. You see your own sin. What would your prayer to God look like in Psalm 51? We handed out like paper and pens to everyone in the room. And it just said Psalm 51 at the top, a, a prayer of restoration. What would you write out as your psalm? So I think the way we respond to those two questions, the way we answer that shows us a lot about ourselves and our understanding of the gospel, and the way we see God, whether he's a God whose arms are open to us, or a God whose arms are crossed, and is angry with us despite what we've done. Psalm 51 is good news for us. It's an incredible psalm, because it says to us, when we mess up, God's grace is there for us, even at our lowest and our worst. So let's take a look and see a little bit more at what David writes in the psalm. Verse 1. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. These three verses would be like a really good summary for the whole of Psalm 51. Uh, they're an amazing picture of the gospel right at the beginning of this letter. And we see two amazing uh, things that are going on in David at the same time, this tension that he's living with. One is his humility. David has been humbled by what he's done, and he's been humbled by the kind of rebuke of Nathan, this confrontation of Nathan. He's so aware of what is inside of him and what he's done that he brings that before God in humility. But at the same time, we see that David is boldly appealing to God. 
I mean, right out of the gates, he's asking for something from God. Boldly, he's coming to God based on God's character, who he knows God to be, what he knows God to be like. He knows that God is loving. He knows that God is compassionate. He knows that God is gracious. And he comes to God with all of those things, and he asks God to show him that at a time when he doesn't deserve it. He says, would you show me the things that you are, God, the things that I need, even though I know I don't deserve it. And different translations translate that first line, be gracious to me, either gracious or be merciful to me, which is quite interesting. Um, Those words are very similar, but also very different. It makes sense that you have them together in that place, but they do show two different aspects of what David needs in that moment. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. It's a free gift, whereas mercy is us not getting what we do deserve. That's kind of the big difference between grace and mercy. David doesn't deserve forgiveness and a second chance, but he asks for it. He's asking for grace. And at the same time, David does deserve judgment and punishment for what he's done. But he's coming to God and he's saying, please don't give me the judgment and punishment I deserve. That's him asking for mercy. And again, I want to ask you one more question, and then we'll really get into this, is that are you humble enough to come to God and ask for that in the way that David does, straight away? And are you bold enough to ask for that? Humble enough to come and say, this is my need, but bold enough to actually say, God, would you give me the things that I need? Because David is giving us permission. He's setting us an example that we can come to God in those ways. David asks, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. And that's been one of the things that stood out to me a lot in this, not his own. David isn't bringing anything good to this equation in verse one. David's looking to God. He's not bringing anything positive. He doesn't have anything to bring to the table. Just the problem. David's bringing a lot of mess before God, a lot of sin, a lot of shame. And he's saying, God, would you help me? Because I don't have what I need. I can't help myself. So according to who you are, would you sort out my problem? Because I know you're the only one that can. He's asking God to exchange his sin and shame for his forgiveness and a clean slate. And David really gets into the detail of this. This is is where we see that he's a humbled man, a, a broken and contrite man in the psalm. Because he gives three words to describe what he's done. Rebellion, guilt, and sin. Three different aspects of what he's committed. And this word rebellion or transgression is when you take something that is not yours or you know there's a certain boundary line that you shouldn't cross and you choose to cross it anyway. You you break the rules. This would be like me coming to your house. I know you're away and I just move in for a few days. I come in, I sleep in your bed, I make myself at home, I eat your food, I wear your clothes. I know this is against the law. I know I shouldn't be doing this. I know you haven't, been, you haven't given me permission, but I make myself at home anyway. In the co-work space that I work from, that happened a while ago. Someone came in one night and slept in the space. They took some of the snacks. They enjoyed them. They made themselves at home. They even pooped in one of the trash cans. It was a real situation. They transgressed. They broke the law. They did something they shouldn't have done. There was footage of all of this going on. That's what David is saying he's done. He's rebelled. He's transgressed. I knew a poop joke would get you guys. I know what kind of church this is. Um, Secondly, he speaks about his guilt or his iniquity. Iniquity is like another one of those old-fashioned words, which means moral 
uncleanness, which again, feels like a very old fashioned idea. Um, Paul Tripp in his book on Psalm 51 talks about this being like when you do a, a load of whites or lights, you're washing all of these clothes, but accidentally you leave a red sock in with the rest of them and everything gets colored. Any Paddington 2 fans in the room? There, we've got at least, we've got a few. It's a 99% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I thought it was 100, near perfect film. But there's a scene where Paddington is in prison and he's washing the clothes of everyone in the prison, all white uniforms, and he leaves one red sock in with the washing. And you see all of these hardened prisoners, these criminals, these gangsters, wearing pink outfits for the rest of the film. It's really funny and really fun. But that's what David is saying here, is his sin has led to this iniquity, this moral uncleanness, which it's like the sin has washed every part of him. He, he's been completely colored by the sin, and now all of him is pink. All of him is sin-washed. And thirdly, he calls it sin. Now, that is a word we use a lot in church, but it's not really a popular word in our culture these days. To say, what I have done is sin. And the word here for sin is best defined as falling short of a standard. David hasn't done what he knew he should do. He's fallen short. So David is praying. He's saying, God, I have done all three of these things. I'm bringing all three of these different aspects of what I've done to you. And he's not just coming to God, confessing what he's done. He's also confessing what he has become. David isn't just saying, listen, I committed adultery. He's saying, I've become the kind of person who commits adultery. He's not just saying, listen, I've killed someone. I've murdered. He's saying, I've become the kind of person who murders. It's not just the behavior. It's, it's the identity. It's who, who he's been transformed into that he's bringing before God as well as the actions. And again, the lights have gone on. This, this is a moment of self-realization and clarity. David is seeing himself in a new light, and he doesn't like what he's seeing. He's shocked by it. He's been in denial. But the lights are on, and he's seeing what's under the surface. And he's asking God to blot out his sin and make him clean. What does it mean to blot out your sin? This is literally him saying, my sin has been written down in a book, and I'm asking you, God, to wipe it out. Can you deal with the record of my sin and take it away? Which is wild. You know, like we don't have a judicial version of this, that if you sin, if you break the law, if you do something you shouldn't do, that you just go to a judge and say, can you wipe out my criminal record? Sometimes in superhero films we see that, or like real thrillers, where there's some criminal with a unique set of skills, and they get this offer from the FBI or the CIA. They say, if you do this one job for us, we will wipe away your criminal record. You can have a clean slate. You can start again. And that's really what David is saying here. He's saying, morally, I know that my slate is not clean. There's nothing I can do. But God, I'm asking you to do that thing. I'm asking you to take away what I've done and make it as if that never happened. He's asking for a miracle. I just want to say, as a preacher, this feels like a pretty straight segue to Jesus in the gospel. <laughs> like, pretty straight segue to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Wiping clean our slate, dealing with our sins, giving us a second chance. But wait, there's more. Psalm 51 carries on. Verse 7, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. If you Google hyssop now, uh, it'll help you a little bit. It'll tell you that it's a small white plant that's got some medicinal value. You'll go, okay, I can see the benefit of this. You know, Maybe clean yourself with the hyssop and you'll be clean. But actually, we don't need to know what's going on with a plant here. We need to know Old Testament history. Because David's mind in this moment of sin and shame 
goes all the way back to Exodus 12 and the Passover. It's kind of a wild thing. I don't know when you're in trouble if you just think to Old Testament scriptures. It's what David is doing. And he goes back to the thinking of the Passover, which was a time when the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt. And God was calling for them to be set free from Pharaoh. And again and again, Pharaoh would say, okay, you can leave and then pull back. You can leave and then you can pull back. And the Passover happened at this dramatic, miraculous moment where the angel of death passed over Egypt and actually every home where there wasn't blood on the lintel or the door frames, they would lose the firstborn child. It was a moment of judgment and it was a moment of, um, I guess, God calling out Pharaoh and the Egyptians for not hearing him, not obeying him and not letting the people go. But what God did is he said to his people, if you will take the blood of a lamb and if you will take hyssop and you will wipe that on the door frames or the lintels of your house, everyone who is in your home will be safe. And David is sitting there in this moment of nerves. He knows that he has sinned. He knows that he deserves judgment. He deserves to be punished for what he's doing. And he's saying, God, would you cleanse me with hyssop? Would it be like I was in the house covered in the blood so that the angel of death would pass over that I wouldn't be judged or persecuted? He's trusting in the blood. He's trusting in God to protect him. He's trusting that actually the punishment of God would go overhead and he would be safe. Again, you don't have to be a theological rocket scientist to see what's going on here. Jesus in the New Testament is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And here David in Psalm 51 is looking ahead. He's looking back, but he's also looking ahead to Jesus. For you and I, we, we've heard the gospel before. For many of us, we've been in church services before. For many of us, we've heard about the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sin to forgive us and deal with our judgment and punishment and to make us right with God and to give us a new life and a fresh start and all of those things. But David, a long time before Jesus walked the earth, is looking ahead with hope to what Jesus would do for him. And he knows the Old Testament picture of the hyssop and the lintels and the blood and being free from judgment and punishment. But he's also looking ahead to what you and I are so familiar with, that Jesus died on the cross, that if we're covered in his blood, we wouldn't be punished or judged. We would have a fresh start. We would have a new start. Jesus is the one who was judged in our place. Jesus is the one who took our sin on himself and gave us his righteousness. Jesus is the one who saves us. And this is one of those moments where an Old Testament passage just feels like it could fit in so easily in the New Testament. You could read this in Romans and be like, oh, this makes complete sense to me because it ties in so clearly with who Jesus is and what he came to do. David's hope in Psalm 51 is our hope today. It's like the old hymn says, what can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And David is looking back and looking forward to say that his hope is in the blood of Jesus to make him new and give him a new life. David's prayer continues, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit for me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. When David prays and asks that he would be cleansed or that his heart would be cleaned and made new, he's admitting something to us that actually his sin goes like deep below just his behavior and to his heart, to the core of his being and to the core of who he is. David doesn't just need to be washed clean for what he's done. He needs to be cleansed for who he has become. 
He needs to be made new. So he prays, create a clean heart in me, O God. The heart is a major theme in the scriptures. The heart in the Bible is the center of our being. It's the core of who we are. It's where our decisions come from. It's where our thinking comes from. It's where our emotions come from. So when David is praying for a change of heart or a clean heart or a new heart, he's saying, I know my heart is affected. I know my heart is infected. I know that my heart needs change for my life and behavior to change. It's not just external, it's internal. David is praying and asking at the core of who he is, at the center of his being, that he would be made new and be washed clean. And you know, it's an incredible thing. I don't know how well you know the story of David, but if you look forward into the New Testament, David isn't remembered as an adulterer or a murderer or for the things he's done. In fact, in Acts 13, it speaks of David, and he says that David is a man after God's own heart. David, who realizes his heart is so dirty and unclean, prays for a new heart, and then throughout history, he's remembered as a man after God's own heart. David, who did the wrong thing, who failed, who, who sinned in such a wild way that he's so ashamed and filled with guilt over what he's done, he prays and says, God, would you make me new? And he's remembered again in Acts 13 as someone who did what God called him to do in his generation. David's heart and his actions are the things that are remembered because God redefines him and makes him new. He redefines the story of David and gives him a new future, even though his present and his past is so broken and marked by sin. Psalm 51 gives us the hope that our lives can be redefined. Psalm 51 tells us that even if you're at your lowest and your worst, God can take your life and make something new out of it. David asked God for a clean heart. Um, when was the time in your life when you felt most dirty? When was the time in you, your life when you felt like you needed to be cleaned the most? I want to tell you guys a little story. It's about a pink sofa, pink couch. It's something that Shell and I love dearly. Um, when we left South Africa a while ago, we left these couches behind and our hearts were broken. It's our one regret in moving. So we didn't bring one of these couches with us. Could you put up the first picture, Brennan? This is actually Mr. Andy Rogers holding our daughter on our pink couch in 2021, I think. See August looking really little. Andy a few years ago looking good. Those of you who are missing him, that's what he looks like if you've forgotten Andy. That's him on the screen. Um, we love these couches. And we had a time because these were older. We inherited these from my gran. I think she probably bought them about 60 years ago. They were gold originally when she got them. And after a while, she decided she was going to recover them. And I remember going to her house when I was like seven. And she had these 30 years ago. My gran had these pink couches and I loved them. So when we inherited them, Shell and I really treasured them. But after a while, we started to think, you know what, these are looking a little bit old which makes sense, they were 60 years old. These are good quality, we wanna keep them, but they might need to be covered a little bit. So we were chatting to a friend of ours who was in our church, who was an interior designer, and we said, Gareth, what do you think we should do with these couches? How should we cover them, what should we do? And straight off the bat, like he didn't even think about it, he said, oh, I would just clean them. And I think we were a little bit embarrassed. We were like, <laughs> we hadn't even thought that maybe they were dirty. And then we were like, how did that just come straight out of your mouth? Like, this is locked in your mind. So we said, okay, I guess we can think about cleaning them before we cover them or anything like that. Do you have anyone you'd recommend to come in and clean our couches? So he gave us a recommendation and they came in and this is the difference it made. Some of you are like, 
you are disgusting. The, I promise you it didn't look as dark and dirty as this when they started, but I took a photo and I sent this to my wife and I said, Shell, the couches were so much worse than we thought they were. We, <laughs> we're, like she was humiliated that I even wanted to share this story today because as you can see, there's a bit of a different, we were living in filth, guys. And after we cleaned these couches, let's just say we didn't feel the need to cover them. They were sparkling. They were brand new. And I think this is part of what's going on with David's story here. David has been through a period where he realizes that actually he's changed more than he knew. Um, He's been sitting on the couches for long enough that he hasn't realized how dirty they've become. In his heart, his heart has grown harder. His heart has gotten dirtier. His heart has drifted far from God. And when Nathan comes to him after all of these things that he's done, it's like the lights go on. It's like the couch gets half cleaned and you realize, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how much has happened. For David, he's not just asking for an outward cleaning. He's saying internally, I'm that dirty. Internally, I've gotten to this place and I didn't realize it. I need help. I need some external assistance. I need to be clean from the inside out. I need to be made new. And I want to say, if you're in this room today and you feel dirty, or even as I share the sermon, it's like the Spirit is highlighting things to you, or guilt or shame is popping up for you, and you just feel the, the dirt or the shame of something you've done or something that's been done to you, Psalm 51 speaks to us, and it says for us, our lives can be made new. We can be washed clean. The dirt can be taken away. Our hearts can be transformed. And like David, no matter where you are right now, our stories can be redeemed and transformed. In Psalm 51 verse 15, the last few verses are all praise. This passage starts with David in the lowest of the low, in the pit, and it ends with David full of praise to God and who he's done. Verse 15 says, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. I think for all of us in this room, if we experience what David experienced, that the moment of revelation of where we are at, who we have become, what we've done, and then we're washed clean, we're forgiven, we're covered with his grace, came back to God whose arms were not closed and folded and angry, but were wide open and embracing, we too would praise him. So we're going to go out with praise in just a second. We're going to sing some songs and take communion. But I wanted to ask you just maybe to sit where you are and just think about these three things. As I've shared this message today, as we've looked at Psalm 51, which of these hits specifically for you? We've seen in the Psalm, when we come to God in sin and failure, embarrassed or at our worst, God's arms are always open and never crossed. Do you need to believe that today? Secondly, God wants to blot out our sin, cleanse us from what we've done and give us a new heart. And thirdly, God can transform our pasts and our presence into a beautiful future. I don't know if any of those stand out to you today, but I'd love to encourage you to bring that before God now. Mar, if you can come forward, maybe just sit with that for a second and let's bring that before God and just pray with me. Father, I just thank you for the offer of Psalm 51 that we can come to you. I'm so amazed at David, just the way he comes into your presence, just asking for help, 
asking for grace and asking for mercy. And I thank you that it is the same for each one of us today, that we can come and ask and that your arms are open. And I pray today, Lord, that you would wash clean some sin and shame, some past, some history, some failures, some mess-ups. And I ask you, Lord, that even now we would trust you with our futures and who we're becoming and the direction we're heading in. I ask you, Jesus, to help us right now, to wash us clean, to make us new, and to lead us forward in your name. Amen. As we take communion like we're about to do, it's an opportunity to practice this, what we've just spoken about. To think of that hyssop wiping the blood on the lintel of the door. To think of Jesus on the cross dying for us and to wash us clean, to make us new, to do all of the things that Psalm 51 promises us. So as you come forward, think of what stands out to you. And as you eat the bread and drink the cup, think of how Christ gave himself for you to take your sin, to give you his righteousness, and to lead you into a new relationship with God. Why don't you come forward? You guys can take a seat. Um, and as we close today, just a couple things I wanted to share. Um, one is just the, the line from one of the first songs that Mar sang has just been like echoing kind of all morning. Um, and it says, Lord, you died that I might reap what you have sown. And it's so simple, but I feel like Grant talked a lot about that idea and just um, just the invitation and the grace in that um, because of what Jesus has done, that we get to reap what he has sown, um, his perfection, his righteousness. And um, I think if we really grasp that, just the way it would change our thoughts and our, our lives. Um, and then to kind of just add to that, Ephesians 1 um, came to mind starting in verse 7. Um, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. And the last part, um, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding, I feel like I read it differently today and just the, um, maybe you guys have always interpreted it like this, but with all wisdom and understanding and just the reality that he poured it out on us, his grace, like knowing how undeserving, knowing what we would do, the failure we would find ourselves in again and again. And just, um, I feel like that's just so like comforting and freeing that, yeah, in his, all his wisdom, he understands who we are. He understands where we fall short, where we're tempted and prone to sin, where we failed, and yet he richly poured it out and continues to do that. Um, and so I just want to pray that over us as we go today. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for being perfect for us, for being righteous, for having a clean heart, for always choosing to submit and obey the Father, for always choosing to love others for laying down your life and thank you that you richly pour out your grace on us again and again that your arms are always open to us and would we take you up on that invitation to come back to you to run back to you um, quickly and confidently as as your children father um, in our shortcomings when your grace makes us aware of where we've fallen short 
would it just be another invitation to receive your your grace and your love and your help so we just pray these things in jesus name amen have a good week you guys